Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's not raining. <laughs> My name's Paul Johnson. Uh, yeah, sorry, that's asking for trouble, isn't it? My name's Paul Johnson. I'm an Edinburgh novelist, uh, and this is an event in the Meet the Author strand. Let me just tell you what's going to happen over the next hour. Uh, I'll introduce our author um, and his novel, after which he'll read a short extract. Uh, and after that, I'm going to chase him around the stage with complicated questions. After that, you'll have the opportunity to do the same thing. We have roaming mics, so if you just stick your hand up, uh, they will come to you. If you can keep the questions short and succinct, please. Um, mobile telephones, kindly tell them off, turn them off, or we will, <laughs> including members of the panel, or we will confiscate them and sell them towards the author's pension fund. There will be a signing uh, in the main signing tent to in that direction afterwards. Uh, this is of some significance because uh, Howard's novel, latest novel, The Act of Love, is not actually available in any other bookshop apart from this one in the festival for another three weeks. So you're kindly invited to make use of this advantage. This is an exclusive. And today is, in fact, the launch of that novel. So let me introduce uh, Howard Jacobson. He was born in... Manchester in 1942, educated at Cambridge University. He lectured in Australia for three years and then taught English at, among other institutions, Wolverhampton Poly, which gave him the material from, for his first novel, Coming From Behind, which was published in 1983. It was followed by Peeping Tom, Redback, and, among others, No More Mr. Nice Guy, The Mighty Waltzer, The Making of Henry, and Kaluki Nights, for which he won the Everyman Woodhouse Award for Comic Writing, which has an interesting prize consisting of a... Pig. <laughs> with which you You get did. a crate of champagne, which, is, which you gratefully receive, and then you get this pig. Um, and you don't, they don't give you the pig, you just look at the pig. The pig looks at you, you look at the pig, and you have no further attachment to the pig, really. Except that for the next few years, you're very hesitant about buying a bacon sandwich, just in case <laughs> a man should not eat his own prize. Uh, not that I eat bacon sandwiches anyway. For <laughs> of course. <laughs> He's also presented several television documentaries, uh, including one... Roots Schmutz, uh, which is about, his, is about his own sense of Jewishness, uh, and another on the meaning of comedy, uh, which was entitled Seriously Funny. A.C. Grayling in The Times described Kaluki Nights as the most intelligent and important novel to appear in this country in years, a work of genius. So he's here to talk about his new novel, uh, launched today, The Act of Love, which Harold Pinter has called frightening, painful, and finally very moving, a tour de force. And also haunting. And <laughs> it's not everybody that can haunt Harold Pinter. You're right. And also naked, actually. And naked as well, <laughs> yeah. I missed that bit out. Right. Naked and haunting, too. Uh, let me tell you briefly about the novel. Uh, it's narrated by Felix Quinn. Felix, I guess, the happy man, uh, although there's a lot of doubt cast on that through the novel. Uh, and the main characters, apart from him, are his wife, Marisa, and her lover, Marius. Now, Felix Quinn is an antiquarian bookseller, which sets up all sorts of questions about the nature of literature and the book trade, which we'll probably get on to later on. Uh, he suffered uh, a boyhood rejection uh, um, in a cinema when he was 15, something like that? Yeah, about um, When uh, he went to the cinema with a girl, uh, was holding hands with her, and then by the end of the film, the girl had gone off with someone else uh, for reasons, and 
in, in a way that was never very clear Which to him. Which particularly bewilders him because there doesn't seem to be anybody else in the cinema. <laughs> One wonders what the movie was. You didn't specify that, did you? I should have done that. It's um, the next book. <laughs> this uh, affects Felix in, in uh, such a way that he, he ends up wanting his wife to be unfaithful to him. He becomes uh, the slave of jealousy. He becomes a deliberate cuckold. There are shades of Othello here, and we'll probably investigate that later on. Um, this is a, a, a very disquieting uh, analysis of the nature of love and the nature of desire, uh, and I think it's fair to say that it's uh, a much more uh, complexly funny book than some of his other ones. Uh, there is humor, but it's, it's, it's on a much more profound level. So I think that's uh, enough of a general introduction for you to, to ha have an idea of what the book's about. Howard, uh, I'd like to invite you now to Thank read you. a section. What do I need to tell you about this before I read it? The marriage has reached a stage where, without it ever being spoken between them, he has let his, Felix has let his wife know um, that what he wants is for her to betray him. Though whether betrayal is the right word for it, since he wants it, um, is one of the things that the book is about. But he's let her know that um, that's what he would like. I won't tell you how he's let her know that or the various stages. They have, however, reached a stage one of, one of, um, in which one of Felix's young nephews comes to stay with them. And um, Felix absents himself a lot from the house so that it is possible for this young nephew who is handsome and dashing and his wife, Felix's wife, to have time together. Whether anything happens between them, Felix doesn't know. But it ends up with the, uh, with, the, with the person staying, falling down the stairs and having to be taken off in an ambulance, not seriously hurt. Uh, whether he fell down the stairs because he was embracing Felix's wife at the top of them, Felix doesn't know. Whether she pushed him away or whether he uh, was running from her embraces, we don't know when Felix... But they've reached the stage when Felix tells his wife, she ought to go in the ambulance with him, you ought to go in the ambulance with him. And she says, what are you talking about? They get as near as they can to having it unspokenly spoken between them that this is what's in the air, to the point where they now know that if they're going to stay together, again, this is unspoken, something has to happen. But before it happens, they have, knowing that something is going to happen, before it happens, they throw themselves into a sort of a period of like another honeymoon of immense love and innocence, as if it's the final, the final burst of loving innocence between them before their relationship changes. We went now for long walks all over London, our hands glued. People smiled when they saw us. I am not a person who normally invites conversation from strangers. I am not saying my face repels it, but I don't make it easy for people to break in on my concentration. Marissa, too, can be for forbidding. Though where my face closes down, hers is full of sharp intelligence, which you think twice before you brave. But together in this mood, we seem to suck whoever came anywhere near us into our happiness. Old ladies sat close to us on park benches. Children, too. Dogs played around our feet. We were not just innocently and good-naturedly in love. We were the cause of innocent, good-natured love in others. And every day while it lasted, Marissa grew more lovely to me. The stains beneath her eyes faded. Her stern Roman nose lifted infinitesimally. Her lips relaxed and grew softer. 
A light seemed to have turned on inside her. On one particularly restorative spring morning, we went out walking in St. James's Park early while the trees were still damp with night. One of the pelicans was sitting on a bench, as miraculous and cumbersome as an angel, clacking its plastic salad server beak. Marissa made me join him and put an arm around his shoulder. Smile, she said, as she photographed us with her mobile phone. And I swear that that was exactly what the pelican did. It's difficult to say, Marissa laughed, which of you looks more incapable of flight? He does, I replied. I spoke only the truth. This morning I was lighter than any other living creature in the park. Marissa excluded. A magpie crossed our path. Hello, Mr. Magpie, Marissa said. How's Mrs. Magpie? I asked her what she meant by that. She was surprised I didn't know the super she was surprised I didn't know the superstition. A single magpie was bad luck. You had to make the pair of them present. I wanted to weep for her. Other people's superstitions affect me in this way. It is as though all their long ago childhood fragility is distilled into the moment of their revealing them. I love seeing the girl in, a wo in the woman. It breaks my heart. And that was how I suddenly saw Marissa as a little girl skipping through the park, being taught by her skittish mother to say, Hello, Mr. Magpie. How's Mrs. Magpie? We kissed under the minty maiden leaves of a willow tree, breathing in their newborn greenness with the rapture of parents, smelling for the first time the freshness of their infant's hair. When we left the shelter of the tree, I saw that minute diamonds of moisture hung upon Marissa's eyelashes like seed pearls. The image is Thomas Hardy's, Tess in a rare moment of happiness, and that was how I saw Marissa in all her harmed innocence, enjoying a reprieve. And then, just as suddenly as it began, it stopped. It was as though we'd been, been embracing for the last time at the foot of the scaffold, and now one of us had to ascend. Before the willow tree came into full leaf, she had a lover. As for how I knew, well, you just know. You cannot be all in all to each other as we had been, and then admit another person and not know. To the eyes of an outsider, we must have looked the same. Still a solicitously loving pair, no space between us, at fault, if it could be called a fault, only in our closeness. Certainly there was nothing in Marissa's appearance, her dress or her demeanour, to suggest her life was even macroscopically different from how it had been. I have seen men oblivious to the fact of their wives fall from virtue, while all the world notes with cruel amusement the shortening of their skirts, their teetering heels, the expansiveness of their décolletage, their longer nails. Marissa was not a woman of that sort. She had not departed from any of her customs or from her essential idea of herself in the course of her dishonouring Freddie, that was her first husband, nor was she other than she had always been to me, nor, nor, nor was she other than she had always been now that she was dishonouring me. So what did I see that others didn't? A new compassion for me was the start of it. A sorrowing look, almost as if she feared what the future held for me. An apprehension of my loneliness would cross her face. Not when we were alone, but in any sort of gathering. Whenever our eyes met from opposite ends of the room, across a dinner party, or when waving a second goodbye in a crowded street. One sunny afternoon, in her half-sister's garden in Richmond, with her unpleasant ginger children playing all around her, she held me through the smoke of the barbecue in a glance of such lingeringly melancholy regret that it was all I could do not to burst into tears. Day by day, the tone of her voice to me altered also. 
No one else would have noticed, but I lived in Marissa's voice as a child lived in its mother's. And I, that was precisely the alteration I detected, a sorrowing tone to match her sorrowing looks, in which I read the diminution of my status as a loved person, from all husband to all child. Giving every, given everything, she owed me no apology as a wife. As a husband, I was the author of my doom. It was in her duty of care, parentally so to speak, that she was prepared to acknowledge dereliction, an acknowledgement that implied a countercharge, the merest whispering of a reproach, for who, if she was failing to take care of me, was caring for her. That was what I heard in the new music of her tenderness to me, the sad and unexpected reasoning of our arrangement, that when the husband abdicates his responsibility to protect, another must take his place, and another had. Eventually, of course, for all her exquisite precautions, he became present to me, an invisible but tangible replacement on the other end of Marissa's now too busy phone at the arrival point of Marissa's now too many taxis. Late for the theatre one evening and fretting because she'd mislaid the tickets, she used a pet name for me I'd never heard before. She assured me on the way out of the house that, was, that it was a name she'd given her husband, Freddy. Short of ringing him, which was out of the question, I had no way of confirming the truth of this, but she did not appear concerned whether I believed her or not. Once upon a time, had anything been amiss between us before we took our seats, Marissa would have squeezed my knee during the performance. But on this night, she kept her hands folded firmly in her lap. Had anyone asked me, even in the interval, what the play was about, I would not have been able to answer. Perfidy, I'd have guessed. What else is any play about? Two or three weeks after this freeze-out at the theatre, I found an expensive fountain pen I didn't recognise on a side table in our living room. Had visitors, I asked? No, why, she replied, not looking up from, a, from her book. And that evening, she turned her mouth away from me when I tried to kiss her. There'd been no room for doubt before, but now certainty was screaming in my ear. A lover. Marissa had taken a lover. The precise locution was important to me. She didn't have a lover. She had taken a lover. Had I imagined I would riot orgiastically in the moment when it came? No, I had anticipated it correctly as the eventualization of terror, as when, hearing noises in the dead of night, you descend the stairs and discover that there is indeed a stranger ransacking your home. But I had not anticipated just how devastating this eventualization would be. In the moments after Marissa refused me her mouth, I shook with fear. A bar seemed to lodge itself inside my chest. My rejected mouth dried up. Had someone cut my throat, or had I, as would have been more appropriate to the occasion, taken a knife to my wrists, I'd have bled iced water. A lover. A lover such as I had once been to her. And he who was first the lover of his wife knows better than anyone the treacherous transference of affections of which that wife, without betraying it in the movement of a single muscle or the disarrangement of a single hair, is capable. It was here what I had asked for, the wounding doubt that was doubt no longer, the wound itself, the gouge in the heart, and I was distraught. Yet at the centre of my distraction, coiled like a baby's fist, was a promise of the immense and terrible bliss to come, not when I was calm, because I never would be calm, but when I at last learned to take possession of all my fears and accept them as my fate. 
Very well then, I would learn and I would accept a lover, a lover, like a celebrant of, like a celebrant of some terrible religion of self-cruelty. I breathed the incense of deception and chanted the unholy words. She has taken a lover. She has taken a lover. My wife, Marissa, has taken a lover. A lover, say it, Felix, for whom she was keeping her mouth pure. And when, many months after this, emboldened by what seemed to me a change in our marital temperature, and remember I'm measured on a scale of exactitude unknown to other men, I put out my lips to kiss her and was not rebuffed, I made the only rational deduction. Lovers, lovers in the plural, too many now to remember which one of them she was keeping her mouth pure for. Like Zelda Fitzgerald, who maddened her husband with the boast that she had kissed thousands of men and intended to kiss thousands more, only with Zelda it was all pampered southern states, jazz-age bravado, whereas Marissa... Marissa was a reflective being, a woman who didn't naturally jig about in body or in mind, a woman who weighed the significance of her deeds, who did nothing lightly, and the consequences of whose, and the consequences of whose kisses, therefore, could only be terrible. Thank you. That was a little, that's a little longer than I would like to have read, but forgive me for it and take it as a compliment because that's actually the first time I've read from it in public. So you are, you, you have me in my, me and the book in our virgin state. And um, whoever has someone in their virgin state has to pay a small price for it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Howard. Um, I wonder if you could give us an insight into the genesis of, of the book. Where did, where did it start from? Did it start from Felix, the, the narrator, or the idea? I never really know where it starts from. I've always written about, I've written about masochism, and Felix's state is, a, is, a, is a, obviously a subspecies of masochism. He seeks pain. I've always written about uh, people who seek pain and masochists and losers because I actually think that's what books are, really. Those are the books I've always, those are the books I've read and they are what I think books are essentially about. Literature is the moral history of losers. <laughs> no one wants to read about a winner. There's no fun in reading about I mean, bad books, books for men, adventure books are about, about winners, but you're not here. I mean, the fact that you're all here, you will know all about this, your readers. The books that you've been reading, the Jane Eyre's that you've been reading, the Thomas Hardy books that you... All those Thomas Hardy novels in which the woman that Hardy himself obviously most loves runs off with a man who is least like Hardy. All those treacheries and betrayals. What else has our joy in reading been ever since we were kids? Loss, loss. If we were winners, if we were winners... I mean, I'm using this in, you know, these are crude terms. But if we were winners in the game of life that, say, has David Beckham, that calls David Beckham a winner, we wouldn't have been reading books. Winners haven't got time to read books. They're, in the, they're working the stock exchange, they're in the city, or they're kicking balls about. So the fact that we read books at all, we read books at all because we were not properly fit for the, for the world. Let's just say it. We can say it. It's just a few of us. That's why we're here in this, in this little tent. So there was, there was, no, there was, there was nothing in, for me new about writing. It was a natural extension, really. The difference was you gain in confidence and, and you, as you get older. And I've gained in I've sort of... I used to write much more wildly funny books and then little by little... It's not that I've found things any less funny. Actually, I think I find things more funny. But uh, you learn the confidence to have other tones. 
And my last book, Kaluki Nights, was quite different in turn from anything. And that gave me the confidence to just, well, move in on something and concentrate on this obsessional quality now of being, let's not just make it a joke, we're all losers, isn't it funny, we're all losers, he's fun. But let's actually look hard into the, into the heart of, of that loss. But also it comes from, I've always had an interest in jealousy, partly because I'm a human being, and how can you not have an interest in jealousy, and I'm a man, and men are perhaps more jealous than women, or they do, they play more games, I think, with their jealousy than women do. But as a teacher of literature, I've always been fascinated by what I've just said about losers, but how much literature is about jealousy, and Othello you mentioned. When I first taught Othello, I had terrible trouble getting students to understand some ambivalences in Othello himself. There's the great line, it's talked about in this novel, Suddenly, Othello turns to Iago and says, would that the general camp had tasted her sweet body. And Iago, dirty-minded Iago, filthy, cynical, envious, mean-spirited Iago, pauses and looks into Othello and thinks, poor, if I thought I had a dirty mind, this is a dirty, this is a dirty mind. Because uh, Iago is envy. Um, Othello is jealousy, and the envious are just means to just deny. But the, the, jealous invent, the jealous invent whole words, and he, Othello is at that moment inventing a whole world in which all his soldiers, not just the one he suspects, are enjoying Desdemona. And he wants to see it. Of course, he doesn't want to see it, and it doesn't want to happen, but he does want to see it. And in many a production of Othello, even if they know what they're doing or they don't, Othello, the more jealous he gets, the more energised Othello becomes. So I grew interested in the idea that jealousy is an energising force, even as it's a debilitating force. So I wanted to write that up. Right. Well, you've mentioned quite a lot of literary precedents, uh, and there are others in the book, uh, including James Joyce, uh, Flaubert, Baudelaire, and many others who, who've written about, uh, I guess, what you could call the masochistic aspects of love. Um, All the best authors do. You uh, won't uh, read a really good author that's not interested in the masochistic elements of love, I believe. Um, and Felix himself, as I said, is, a, is an antiquarian bookseller. So to, to what extent is, is this a sort of literary construct uh, uh, in some way, kind of, if you like, deconstructing literature and, 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 and putting literature under the, under the microscope? Well, there is some of that. There, there certainly is some of that. And the book, you know, I, I don't feel embarrassed talking about. It's, it's hard when you want to write about books in a book because you, you, it's a novel, not a, not a tract. Mm. And, and you have to work hard to find ways of being, have, have your characters talking about books. Uh, without it sounding as though anybody, least of all myself, is giving a lecture. But I grew very interested in something else, um, exactly in real, not just that, not that, that, just that jealousy is often the subject of literature, but that we as readers um, often behave towards the book and the experience of reading exactly as jealous lovers do. You know what jealous lovers do. We've all been jealous. We, none of us have to be embarrassed about this. We've all been jealous. And one of the things we often do, it's very rarely that we say, some people do, I don't want to know anything about it, let's just live our lives as normal. That's quite rare. The usual one is what happened. Tell me. Tell me, tell me. What happened? And then what? And then what did the wife say to the husband? And then what did you do? And then what did she say to you? And then where did you go? And the husband, who is often even more curious than the wife, but it will depend. The husband will often say, and then, what, and, 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 um, and then what did he do to you? And then what did he say? And then what did you do? They want to know and they're not wanting to know. What does this remind you of? It's reading. And then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? This kind of, there is something slightly obscene in the, in, in, well, utterly obscene in the curiosity of, the, of the, the, the jealous husband and wife, necessarily obscene. And there is something similarly obscene in the act of reading, in our eagerness 
to know, in our concupiscent eagerness to know, to turn the page, then what, and then what, and then what, and then what. And I think often we are, some novelists more than others, I think Thomas Hardy is, the, I've written about Thomas Hardy, written a whole novel about Thomas Hardy, Peeping Tom was about Thomas Hardy. But what fascinates me about Thomas Hardy is that, w is that he makes you suffer when you read it, that, that all of them, that all of his heroines, he makes you feel as though you are their jealous husband and you have to suffer as they go to utterly inappropriate men. And often men who, because you're a reader and therefore a loser, men who are not. Men who are Sergeant Troy. You remember Sergeant Troy with his flashing, with his flashing sword? The agonies we go through because she, who is it? I've forgotten the name. Is it Bathsheba? Yes. Because Bathsheba is fooled by that flashy, meretricious masculinity. Why doesn't she love us? Why doesn't she love me? And we become... Thomas Hardy deliberately does it. Because he is himself the jealous, the jealous possessive husband of his heroines. He turns us, us male readers anyway, don't know, what, don't know how women read Hardy, but he turns... Maybe they don't. He turns male readers of Hardy into the jealous, possessive heroines of the lover. So I got very interested in the idea. I won't want to take it too far, but that there is a relation between the, the, the jealous husband and wife and the act of reading. Right. Well, you, you mentioned Othello, and, and there's quite an, uh, an issue of theatricality throughout the book. I mean, the title itself, The Act of Love, suggests that, that, that there is a, a sort of theatrical construct as well. Uh, I mean, what was your thinking in, in, in factoring that into Well, the that you never know. There's a wonderful, there's a, there is a wonderful play by James Joyce called Exiles, which in, which in which her husband, Joyce is very interested in this subject. It's a very Joycean book, without it reading like Joyce at all, as you will know from, her, from what I've just read. But Joyce was very interested in the whole business of how a man lives with a woman who is or he thinks is unfaithful. And Exiles is a play about a husband trying to get his wife to sleep with his best friend. And at the end of the play, she steps forward and she says, I'm going to tell you what happened. And he goes, I don't want to know. I actually don't, after all the asking, because in that place, what did you do then? Then what did he do? Then what did he say? Then where did you go? Did he kiss you? Did you kiss him? I mean, disgusting, disgustingly intimate and precise and lit disgustingly literal questions. And she says, okay, I'll tell you. And he says, no, he says, no I don't want to. I want to live in, I want to live in, and the wonderful phrase, which when I heard it, echoed in my mind, I want to live in wounding doubt. He wants the wound of doubt. And that phrase was echoed in the piece I, I just read. And so I'm very interested in this, I thought, to, to construct a story in which you don't ever know, as you don't ever really know. The truth is you will never find out the nature of. You can pursue your husband or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, what happened, what happened, but you won't ever know what happened. You might get the physical details, but the intimacy you will never know. You will never know unless you're the lover. And sometimes the natural, the, where jealousy will take you, is that you almost want to be the lover. Because only by being the lover will you ever know the, the, the extent of the treachery, the extent to which you have been betrayed. And because you can't be the lover, you never know. You never know if anything has happened or not. And this book is full of the mysteries of not knowing. Another very interesting uh, aspect of theatricality is, is the role of dance in the book, and particularly the tango. Um, which uh, Marissa is uh, well. Marissa is fascinated by all aspects of dancing, the the, the practical aspects of them. I, I must admit, I did, did struggle a bit with the idea of Felix um, doing a tango, but uh, it's obviously an important aspect of his. Well, he struggles a bit with the idea of him doing a tango <laughs> too, and he can't do the tango. But they, but he, but he gets to do the tango because he sets it up to try and get his own back on the lover. He wants it to make the lover embarrassed, and the lover is caught in a moment of seeing um, the wife with the husband, he doesn't know who the husband of the woman he's having an affair with, and, and Felix, I won't 
spoil the story for you, but Felix sets it up so that the, 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 in, the, in the tango, which is the great dance of betrayal and male power and the rest of it, um, there is a reversal of who he's being jealous of. You see why Harold Pinter liked it. He, would love, he, he likes that idea of you know, who, who's in charge. Because you know how often in a, in a, in a, in a three-way relationship, I think it was, who's the painter that went to the South Sea Islands? Gauguin. Yeah, Gauguin said, um, I don't know what relationship he was referring to, but he said, in a three-way relationship, it's the lover that's the real cuckold. And that's often the case. And that's what happens for a moment, or, the, or Felix, my hero, wants to make happen. He wants to turn the lover into the cuckold to feel the jealousy that he feels. And I thought a tango in Regent's Park, because I've seen them doing the tango in Regent's Park on summer. I like the tango in Regent's Park. I hate the dance, actually. It's all kind of strange, stiff-legged movement. But it is, the, it is the dance in which the woman is meant to be a prostitute and the man is meant to be, you know, her pimp or whatever. And that seemed the right kind of dance well, to it. It's a dance that has a narrative um, of, of sorts. Yes. Uh, which I guess not all dances do. I'm not a, an expert on dance. No, and it tells that story. I mean, the woman, the woman, you know, seeks woos and woos and woos the man who, you know, has usually got a black bandana on and, a, you know, and looks at And for a man like Felix, of course... Men who dance, men who dance, the men who can tango are his natural enemies because he's a loser, and men who can dance tangos are winners. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, can, can we look a bit about uh, at the main three characters? Um, I mentioned um, Felix and his na name, which clearly refers to not a cat, but um, to happiness, which I presume not Felix the cat. Um, it didn't occur to me it was Felix. <laughs> you can find anything if you look <laughs> yes, hard enough. Yes. Um, Marissa, the wife, uh, Marissa being a name which I think. Um, roots back to Maria, and I was thinking about Maria Magdalene there somehow. I don't um, do. I don't do that. Okay. If it, if it does, it hadn't occurred to me that. And how about Marius as the sort of? Um, uh, well, I did hear. I did hear lover. Marius the Epicurean. I did hear oh, that, right. and I wanted a name that just. I just wanted a name that sounded that you couldn't quite locate. It's not quite an English name. Well, it's not an English name mm. really. And I wanted somebody who would whose name would resound in the mind of a jealous husband with well, foreignness and threat. And I just heard threat right, in well, Marius. Well, and when, but once I had Marius, Marissa came from wanting a name that sounded like Marius right. so that they sounded like a pair, a pair. so that in the, husband's, in the husband's head, Marius and Marissa's. Because somewhere, he doesn't only want, insofar as you can call this want, he doesn't, he doesn't only, he isn't only fascinated in the idea that she might be faithless to him, physically faithless, that, that she and the lover might have sex. But, you, but because this is a greed that can never be satisfied, since it's indulged, is hungrier than the sea, he wants, he, he, he wants his wife to fall in love with this man. He wants this man to fall in love with her. There are several epigrams taken from Great Expectations in the book. Miss Havisham to Estella, love her, love her, love her. And he's thinking that, you know, love, make this pain, this, this, wound, this pain of wounding doubt, make it even more acute than it would be if it was simply a bit of sex. Love each other. So Marius and Marissa twined, even twined, and not just in each other's arms. But I hope this isn't get, getting too hot for you all. <laughs> <laughs> but verbally twined as well. Right. Well, you, but you use the word resound, so that there's an element of kind of archetypal characters. I mean, and you build this all, all in with the literature, the literary background of the characters as well. I mean, do you, was that something you, you were de deliberately aiming at to get more of a, 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 of a sort of surge of power, if you like, in the way that these characters uh, appear on the page? No, it didn't feel like that. No, I wanted to simply wanted to tell the story, and the more yeah. I told the story, the you know, the more I thought about, you know, the more it occurred to me that this is a story that's got books behind it. 
I mean, you begin by wanting to write the story which no one else has written, and I, I don't think anybody, I can't think of anybody that's told this story with this kind of um, concentration upon the thing and the thing alone. But I kept thinking of the other books in which I have, you know, read about it. And I also wanted it to be a book in which readers think about that, not just about this story. This is, this, these things happen to these three people. That's, you know, that's what you want from a book, of course it is. But I wanted, I wanted readers to think about other things true. Is this true about literature? Is it true? There's a kind of partly a crusading element in this too, because I do think English literature has shied away from this subject, really. People who've read it so far have also said, oh, it's very French. And, you know, some of the people behind my thinking, Georges Bataille, the French philosopher of sex who wrote pornography, which isn't interesting, but wrote very interesting philosophical books on, on, er on eroticism and talks about loss all the time. There's a little, the thing with which the book, with, sorry, is that my microphone? No, it hasn't fallen off. Okay. The thing with which the book begins, I think, is terribly powerful. Georges Bataille writes on eroticism, the fever of the senses is not a desire to die, nor is love the desire to lose, but the desire to live in fear of possible loss. And I thought that's just, you know, is desire, is really intense desire, the desire to live in fear of possible loss. And I thought that's not how love is talked about in our literature mainly. You know, it's boy meets girl, fall in love, we care, will, will anything break them up or will they get back together? I'm, we don't, because we are not essentially a, a philosophical people, particularly about eroticism, in this country. I thought that was the challenge. Can I write an English book about English people in the English language in which we approach some of those general questions about, desperately important questions, I think, about what is the nature of desire? And then what is the nature of perversion? And then what is the nature of um, naturalness? Felix, in the course of this book, becomes a kind of crusader for his point of view. He is, I mean, he says to people, I am a pervert. I am a pervert. But he comes to feel that, you know, our only salvation really is in, is in perversion. Marissa works at the, um, at the Samaritans, um, one of the things that she does. And Marissa has often said that, you know, the people who ring her up at the dead of night because they are in despair are not perverts. They're not people who go to S&M clubs, as, as Felix goes for reasons of his own, and I won't spoil the story, goes to an S&M club. They're not people who are exploring the depths of sadism and massacre. They are lonely people. And often what makes people lonely is um, not having the nerve, really, to just follow, just follow a, a, what we would normally call perversion. So in its own way, this book is a kind of, this is to put it extremely, but I'll put it anyway, a defense of perversion. Perversion is good for you, is what this book is saying. <laughs> I'm going to ask Howard one more question, and then I'll open it to the floor, so get your thinking caps on. Um, can we talk a bit about comedy, uh, Howard, which is your um, sort of track record, if you like, in literature, and you have won a pig for it. Um, this, this book is perhaps a kind of human comedy, almost in the Dantean sense, but the comedy is, is, is much different from your previous writing. Would you like to tell us why you've changed things? Well, you just... I got very upset when people like Woody Allen stopped being funny. And then Philip Roth, the great American novelist, has also stopped being very funny. And I kind of, and then people say, well, you know, or you, or you, you think yourself, well, they're older and sadder and wiser and, you know, 
life is less funny for them. I very much feel that, you know, as life gets less and less funny for us, we need comedy more. There should be more comedy, not less. As we closer we get to the grave and the more we start to fall apart and so on, comedy is what we need. So I have not turned my back on it by any means. But you just do want to practice different notes, really. I mean, you, you, it's, it's a bugle and you practice. And I was very interested in practicing, you know, basso profondo, trying to sound basso profondo notes of comedy on this one. But it is, it is, it is funny. I've noticed, I mean, it's had one review in the Tattler and somebody said it was, you know, a rumbustious, ribald comedy of... Well, it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that at all. But it has got... So it's... I was interested to see how far can you take somebody to the extremes. And this book actually is... becomes more and more a tragic book. Um, it's all very well saying, on the part of me wants to say, you know, practice perversion is good for you, but it's... That's not the story that's told in this book at all. It gets extremely upsetting. I was more upset writing this book towards the end than I have ever been. But I wanted to feel that even there, somehow or other, comedy should always be at play, because I've always hated, we've had this conversation, I've always hated the idea that there is comic writing and then there is serious writing. Um, the most serious writing has comedy in it. How can it not have? Comedy is one of our resources. We know it in, uh, in, in life. We, we employ comedy at certain moments because it is necessary for us. And any book that is not able to deploy comedy loses, loses a human resource. And, and, and a book can't... The most serious books can't be those in which we shut down one of the most important of our human resources. So for me, no book is truly serious, which isn't also somewhere, which doesn't mean you fall about laughing, though you do, I think, I hope, with some of mine. But no book is truly serious, which isn't also somewhere truly comic at its heart. So I think this is, but it's deeper, deeper and more uncomfortable. I, want, I wanted people to be quite uncomfortable when they laugh at this, because they're laughing, and I don't want readers to feel, he is this, who are these weird people? I want people to feel, hmm, this is uncomfortable because this is creeping dangerously close to areas I'm, I don't normally acknowledge. It's that kind of comedy. See yourself in this and laugh, because if you don't laugh, you'll slit your throats. <laughs> right, OK. That's a good place to end this section of the show, I think. Uh, and we'll bleed white, ice white. <laughs> uh, we'll have the house lights up, please, Alan, so we can see you. And I'd like to invite questions from the floor. Right, there's someone down here, first of all. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Um, do you think people are generally happier if they don't overanalyze love and try and just sort of be happy with what they've got? No. <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything to be said for non-investigation. I don't think, I think there is an idea that, you know, if we, we can all live ignorantly in bliss. I've never seen, I've never seen happy, ignorant people, ever. That doesn't mean I've seen, uh, I've seen that many happy analytic people. I don't know how, I don't know how happy, I don't know how happy it, it falls to us to be most of the time. But, but there's something more important than happy and that's interested. You live an interested life and you can't live an interested life if you are not interested in your, in, interested in your emotions, what makes them. And how can we not be interested in, I've never got that one about love. What do you want balance for? <laughs> I mean I, I mean, I can see that you're worried here, that you're thinking some of this stuff, <laughs> some of this stuff should be left alone. I don't think anything should be left alone. You know the famous phrase, an unexamined life is, is not a life worth, worth living. I, I believe that. Examine everything. You can't think too much. Thank you.
are Melissa and Felix married? The resource of women who see a threat to their love in marriage is it previously, during an age when marriage was a sign of respect, women clung to the respect rather than to accept the breakup of their love. Are they married? They are married, yes. Right. They are married. Oh, well, in a way, I'm rather sad to hear that because the, uh, the current generation don't seem to need the constructs of marriage to um, fall back on. Uh, have you any comment to make on that? Sorry, who needs the concept of marriage to fall back well, on? Well, uh, in, in the past ages, um, until fairly recently, when partnerships became uh, the de rigueur, um, women would fall back on the respectability of marriage, uh, even though they knew that the marriage was actually over in terms of love. Um, had your book, in fact, made them not married, it might have been more um, uh, up-to-date. Would you like? <laughs> well, people do get married. <laughs> people do yeah. still get married. Well, what I'm trying to get is, is there any illumination as to where the defences lie for either the men or women who are living uh, a life which is unsatisfactory in terms of love? But then, I mean, Marius, um, Felix and Marissa are happily married. They are happily married. They love each other. Um, they both love each other a great deal, and one never has any... Part of, the, part of the questions you have to ask is, what kind of a burden is it on Marissa to have to do this for him? How far is she doing it for him? How far is she doing it as an expression of her own nature? How far does she understand that to keep, to keep satisfied and happy the man she loves, she will give him this as a, as a favour? How much is it for her? How much, all these things are alive in it. Um, but it is not a question that because you're not allowed to feel in this novel, even though you might want to, your morality might want you to feel that if they really loved each other they wouldn't do that, you're not allowed to feel that in this novel. They love each other and they do that, if they do that. But they love each other. Um, and they are happily married and even, con and even conven conventionally married. They go on honeymoon. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Someone else like to jump in over here? It's all men, I'm noticing. The women are very silent. <laughs> D don't provoke them. <laughs> well, perhaps you're writing for men. Would you, this, back to this word happy, would you agree, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, that the idea of trying to be happy is perfectly ridiculous, that happiness is, if anything, is it's a byproduct? Well, I've, I've always wanted to be happy, and... Um, and these days, I actually am, these days I actually am happy, so it's quite hypocritical of me to, you know, to say, never mind, happy, be interested. But I'm not sure that, you know, it might be that, that, that as, we, as we grow a bit, we get a, a different sense of what being happy is and the, and the things that make us happy. For example, this is the story about a man who will be made, will he be made happy? Well, his name's Felix. But who wants to, let's put it like this, you know, he wants to be made happy by being unhappy. That's the paradox. He wants to, you know, only suffering will... And that's the wonderful thing about the subject of, of masochism altogether. How do we... Ex bewildered Freud. How do you explain? How do you explain why people will find an economic payoff of happiness in suffering? And we will not understand anything about human nature, I think, until we, you know, get to the bottom of 
masochism, and we probably never will get to the bottom of masochism. But it is prevalent. It is, you know, whether you actually practice masochistic acts, it doesn't have to be that at all, or you just, in some other way, worry more than you should. The things that take us to, you know, doctors and psychiatrists, all the various ways in which we load ourselves with more suffering. We read bad news, we seek out bad news. What is it that we are doing? And what does it mean if that's one of the ways that we find satisfaction? One of the things that, that, that Felix says is, Felix is an extremely jealous man. This is not the story of someone who thinks that, you know, couldn't care less what his wife does. This is an extremely jealous man. And this is a man who's, who, who thinks very early on when he discovered jealousy in himself, love seems to be about loss. You will lose. You, 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 the minute you love that you fear you're going to lose something. You take something into your life that you love and the possibility of loss is there. It's not just, this is not just an erotic fact. Women who have their first child or any child will tell you that. The world becomes suddenly a much more dangerous place. You take something that you want into your life, suddenly you've got something more, something more to lose. So Felix thinks, what am I going to do about the fact that there is every chance I will lose? I've loved so I will lose. So he decides he will practice loss. And this is, of course, what masochists in all systems do. They say, I've always said, for example, that a Jewish joke is a wonderful form of masochism. The Jews have had to learn how to live with the fact that they you know, will be maltreated, will be kicked out. So they come up with a Jewish joke, which sort of says, we will say against ourselves all the most horrible things that can be said against ourselves, and we will do it better. They're now speaking to Nazis, Cossacks, whoever. We will do it better than you do. We will beat ourselves better than you do. And that becomes a form of protection, and even, if you like, a form of happiness. I am protected against the dangerous things that will make me unhappy by making myself more unhappy than you can make. <laughs> Thank you. And in the case of a Lady Jewish Lady. joke, it works. <laughs> Pass the microphone. Hello. Um, you haven't read the book, of course, but you make masochism sound like a very selfish pursuit. Would you say that was, that was yes, true? Yes, it is. It is. It is. And, and here is one of the, you're quite right, and here is one of the other you know, great paradoxes in all that. No one is more sadistic than the masochist. Um, and this is known in the, you know, in the psychiatry and the psychiatry of the subject. People often, you know, often say that where, where couples truly practice a, a, a masochistic, sadistic relationship, it is very hard to know which the sadist is. And it is often the masochist who wants this done to him. And, and, and Felix thinks about this, thinks that there is a cruelty in it. Although he never says to Marissa, you must do this to me, you must do that to me, you must do that, you must make me suffer. He lets it be known that that's what it wants, and that is extremely demanding and egotistical. Yes, it is. It is. Thank you. Any more hands? Someone over here? I haven't seen it. All right. See you now. Right in the corner. Possibly a slightly trivial thing, but I've realized uh, one potential unitive thing with uh, Jewishness, masochism, and tangos. Have you ever listened to The Masochism Tango by Tom Lehrer? I have come to think of it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I'd forgotten that I had, yes. But that's taken me a long time back, yes, yes. But can you remember the words? Um, uh, something about castanets. Um, uh, I long for the taste of your lips, dear, but much more for the taste of your whips, dear, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you can raise welts like nobody else as we dance the masochism tango. Most thought that's just a t It's good. You, you wouldn't like to come around with me, and would you? <laughs> the trouble with that is just a tiny bit light, though, isn't it? It's just a tiny bit chirpy. That one. We have now combined the fringe with the book festival, yeah. which is a, a, Edinburgh first. Any other hands? Anyone else like to sing? Or a... <laughs> yep, someone here. I'm puzzled about Marissa. Um, she doesn't seem... I can't understand how she can put up with all this. Is she, in fact, complicit? Does she enjoy his masochism? Is she playing along with it? Um, is she an old-fashioned, unreconstructed woman, or is she ultra, ultra new woman? She's certainly not an old-fashioned, unconstructed woman. She is a very, she is a very modern woman. Um, we see her once. Someone takes her before she meets Felix. We see her once taken to a um, to a wife swapping party in Walthamstow, which is where <laughs> which is where wife swapping wife swapping happens in in London. Um, it's mainly taxi drivers. And, taxi drivers in leather shorts but she goes along <laughs> she goes along to all that she's she's quite well to do um, middle-class woman and she's lived an independent life she works for various charities because she feels guilty about her. she's been she, she 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 also gives lectures in on art at the Wallace collection in London An educated intelligent woman um, who's li who's led a very sexually emancipated life um, Though there are questions to be asked, she asks herself questions about what it is she's doing and why she's doing. But she's a modern, free woman, so she is not shocked by, by, um, by Felix. But quite what in her heart, what in her heart she feels at the eleventh hour, um, we don't. We get close to towards the end when things do start to go wrong. I don't pretend that this can, you know, you can go on doing this happily forever and ever and ever. There are there are problems. There are there is bodily illness for a start. Um, but there are things deliberately left... I mean, I did think about writing, you know, a section in which Marissa tells her story, and that would have been a challenge, and I would have been interested in doing it, but it would have spoilt the unexpectedness. The, the, not the unexpectedness, the not knowing, the wounding doubt. So to a degree, she leaves the reader in some wounding doubt as she leaves, as she leaves Felix. But the challenge for me was to suggest a woman who is not his doormat, who is not just doing that because he wants her to do that, but who can find, it would seem, can find a way of doing this um, that accords with her own sense of how it might be fun to lead a life. And of course it does mean that there are times when Felix feels there is a great chasm growing between them. She has her lover, if she does, it looks as though she does, and that means she's spending time with the lover, only a few hours a week, which suits the lover too. Um, and she starts to recede from Felix. She, isn't just, she doesn't come scuttling home and, t and tell Felix everything he wants to hear. They have lots of arguments um, about it. But, but she is capable of... I very much wanted us not to be in a superior position and going, you know, a decent wife would, or a strong... She is a decent wife. She is a respectable and highly intelligent woman. Um, and how, how she makes all those things hang together, you have to read... You have to read the book. And whether anyone can, in the end, is a, is, a, is a proper question. Whether anyone can ever satisfy anybody else's sexual demandingness, whatever its nature, is a question for all of us. And what obligation we are under to satisfy another person's exorbitant sexual demandingness. And, you know, and unless it's exorbitant, it's not a sexual demand. 
Because, you know, the one, thing, the, one, the one thing that Felix is contemptuous about is, you know, the idea that, you know, there comes a certain stage when sexual happiness quietens itself down and you have children and get an allotment and... <laughs> you know, that is, that is what happens in many sexual men in people's lives and that's absolutely fine. But this not, but that's where that then stops. This novel goes beyond that. What happens if, you know, you're not going to settle for an allotment? <laughs> One last question up at the top there. God, have we got that late already? Yep. How interesting you've all been in that case too. <laughs> um, the question is, I've got in my head is, could you describe a bit about your research that you did for this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it took so long for that question. <laughs> There's a thing that, Ip that Ibsen, Ibsen famously said, and that is that, you know, he feels that sometimes he, he writes out of something exalted in his nature, that um, he writes out of things that are beyond him to be, but that he feels that, you know, somewhere in himself he could have been. Because he says you can never write out of, you can't write out of something that you, would, that you don't feel. And he, but he also says, and there is also much of what I write that grows out of the dregs and sediments of my nature. I think all the research one needs, re and, you know, any, any, any good writer, any person thinking about life, but certainly any good writer, finds everything he needs to know about human life in himself. I mean, presumably, where did Shakespeare go to, you know, to find out about what it's like to, to kill somebody, what it's like to be an old, selfish old man, what it's like to be sexually jealous, because nobody writes about sexual jealousy more than, more than Shakespeare. Shakespeare looked, looked into himself. But it doesn't mean, you don't look into yourself and then you don't think, I'll, I'll have a little, I'll look, I'll look and see what the dregs and sediments are telling me, like reading the leaves, what they're telling me about sexual jealousy today. You know, you, 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 hit, you move towards the subject. When, when Flaubert said, um, Madame Bovary, c'est moi, I think it's very important that we don't suppose that he said, um, um, I'm now going to write about myself, only I'll call myself Madame Bovary and I'll make myself a provincial dreaming you know, woman who only reads cheap romances. It means he got to be Madame Bovary. By the time the novel was finished, he was Madame Bovary. I am Felix by the time I get to the novel. I didn't find all of Felix in myself, but I found in, in the dregs and sediments of my nature all sorts of thoughts about the equivocal nature of jealousy in myself. And you would, as, you know, as, re as readers, I hope, or as people who are kind enough to come and you know, listen and maybe think about readers, you would want no less from me, would you? You, want, you would want to feel that I am here talking to you about this subject because I boldly go. <laughs> For you. Thank you very much, Howard. Um, consider the act of love duly launched. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention and your questions. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Howard will be happy to continue talking to you and, of course, sign books in the main signing tent uh, out and to the left. If you'd allow us to get out of the door first before you stampede, we would be very grateful. Please thank very much Howard Jacobson. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. Great. Thank you.